You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, Citizens Church, it is a gift and honor to be here with you again this weekend. And man, I am so endeared to this place. We do have a lot of shared history together. I mean, our campuses rolled off around the same time five years ago. And certainly some of the staff that are here, as even Adam mentioned, are just near and dear to my heart. So Melissa, of course, Bleeker every now and again, Jamin less than that. But other than that, uh, really, really grateful for the crew here. And it's an honor to be with you. Uh, as we continue in this Psalm series here this summer, I want to invite you to turn with me again to Psalm 33, if you're not there already. Psalm 33, this is a text um, some people can read and know, other people will live. And this is a text that I've lived in uh, for the better part of the last decade in particular. Um, This is a psalm that helps us understand what it is that is meant to anchor us in seasons of uncertainty. In those times of circumstances where everything's shaky around you and you're not sure what's coming tomorrow, this is one of those songs, psalms that teaches you what to hold on to when everything else is changing. And uh, that, the idea of change and uncertainty, major theme in my life over the last decade. Moved out of state four different times, um, a lot of back and forths and new jobs, new roles, what's next. Um, I had a two-year stretch in the midst of that where I experienced the loss of 11 family members in two years. Um, Between my wife and I, we buried three of our parents, all of our grandparents, um, cousins, aunts. Uh, It was a uh, horrifically painful and turbulent season of uncertainty, so much being stripped away. Uh, Even in coming back to Dallas, coming back home five years ago, transitioning the, uh, the Village Northway Dallas campus off from the village uh, into an autonomous church, just like citizens, uh, we uh, experienced quite a bit of uncertainty in both the transition away into autonomy three weeks after we became an independent church. Uh, we were hit by a tornado and that tornado destroyed our, our buildings and I mean, this was so fresh, our insurance was still under the village. We almost just said, hey, it's yours. Figure out what to do with it. Uh, but we had, we had to transition really, really quick. And no less than four or five months after the tornado, we all got hit by a pandemic. And it was just one thing after another. So much uncertainty. And one of the things I found is, um, as one man once said, is you know, change is inevitable. It's growth that is optional. That's what you're going to have to step into. And it's not whether our circumstances will change, but it's when they do, how will we respond to them? In faith or in fear? And Psalm 33 has given me, and I hope it will give you, no less than seven great anchors in the midst of uncertainty. Seven assurances, seven promises that we can hold on to in the midst of seasons of change. Now, it's an interesting psalm because the background of the psalm is actually, it's a hymn. It was a psalm that was sung as a congregational praise to God by his people. The people would gather in the temple courts in Jerusalem and they would take this hymn, they would take this psalm and they would sing it 
as a praise to God. But here's the crazy uh, backstory to it. They sang it while they're in the midst of a war. The background of this psalm is when Israel was being uh, besieged by their enemy, encircling around Jerusalem, choking out all resources, leading to famine, leading to death, and the threat of war and destruction every day was upon them. And as they did so, as this enemy is a camp encamping around them, what we find is that they begin to sing. You go, what? This is crazy. And the, the, the wild thing is this was actually not an unusual circumstance. Second Samuel 11 tells us that every spring, the kings would go out to war. Every spring, you're faced with this possibility that at any moment, everything may be stripped down and taken away from you. And so there was not... There was, a, there was just not, the, not only a circumstantial insecurity, there was national insecurity. Threats all around you. And so as this has happened, the people gather together and they're going to sing this hymn. You just go, this is crazy. But here's what I want you to see as we walk through this. Again, seven postures, seven anchors, seven exhortations here that this, this psalm gives us in the midst of our own uncertainties. The first thing that the psalmist wants us to know right out of the gate is that whatever God has or doesn't have for you in the future, our posture must be one of thanksgiving. And you see this in verses one through five. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So here, with all these enemies breathing down on Israel's doorstep right here, God, God says, hey, bust out the band. I know there's famine, I know there's death, I know there's war all around you, but get the harp, get the drums, bleaker, get them out here. Let's lead out this thing and let's just get our praise on right now. And you're just like, what? That's crazy. Why would you do that? Because the circumstances are worthy of it? No. It's because your God is worthy of it. Even though your circumstances may have changed in an instant, your God has not. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so therefore, therefore, when these circumstances come, you can trust that God is faithful. He's fixed in his character. You see that in verses four and five. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. He is upright. He is faithful. He is just. He is steadfast and movable in his loving kindness towards his people, even when all the world is falling apart. So rather than, and you don't miss this posture here, rather than running to fear, you can run to faith. Rather than running to panic, you can run to praise. Rather than running to anxiety, you can run to awe. Rather than running to worry, you can run to worship. Rather than running to the treason of God because your circumstances have become awful, you can actually run to the thanksgiving for God because of who he is in the midst of those circumstances. He has not changed. He loves you. And because of that, you might go, well, man, that's 
crazy. How can we rest in that posture of thanksgiving and praise and worship when the literal walls are falling down around me? Don't you know what's going on? And the psalmist says, that's exactly right. The reason you can be thankful is because number two in verses six through nine, the Lord is sovereign over everything. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You get the idea that the psalmist is reading Genesis 1 when he's penning this hymn, reflecting on the idea that our God is the one who created the whole world. Everything that's around us, both visible and invisible, with just his word. And thus, Psalmist concludes, if our God has done all of that, then that means there is not a single molecule, there is not a single event that he is not sovereignly in control of even these threats that are coming at us right now. So as a result, we can joyfully lay down our control of our lives with both all of our insufficiencies and all of our failures, and we can rest in his sovereign plan to rescue and redeem and provide as he sees fit. Paul said the same thing to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter one, verse 17. Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Psalmist said in Psalm 29:10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. Even in the flood, God has not lost his rule and his reign. He is sovereignly in control. And so thirdly, because he is sovereign in verses 10 through 12, then you can know that nothing can thwart God's plans. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So the armies can conspire, the enemies can threaten, the schemers can scheme, the haters can hate, T-Swift. The mind flayers, the demogorgons, whatever's out there can wage war against you. But because God is good and because God is sovereign, nothing can thwart his plans. It may seem like they're winning in the moment, but you're only looking at 15 minutes of a two-hour movie in which God is the writer, the director, the producer, and he gets to say how this thing ends. And he promises that he has the ability to even use these horrific circumstances that are happening from this world in order to bring about a glorious end of the good of us and the glory of himself. Paul said the same thing when he wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, in him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So you hold on 
He has got this figured out. Oops is not in God's vocabulary. And should you think that somehow you're the only one on earth whom God has forgotten about, that you're the only one whom God has overlooked in all his affairs, the psalmist says, fourthly, you need to know God sees everything. Verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them, the hearts of them all, he observes all their deeds. He knows right where you're at. He knows every need you have. He can see the pain of the oppressed, and yes, he can see the affliction of the oppressor. And he can see what nobody else can see. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten about his promises towards redemption. Now, remember what David's words were to his son, Solomon. When Solomon was about to build the temple, David was soon to pass. David said these words in 1 Chronicles 28, 20, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Now, where would David get that idea? Where would David get the idea that in the Lord's work, God is with you, that God is not going to fail you even when the hardships may come in this thing? The answer is his own experience. This is all David's ever known. He knows what it's like to blow it, to have his sin jeopardize everything, and yet be met with the mercy and the forgiveness of God and the restoration of God. He knows what it's like to be hemmed in from every direction when Saul was in pursuit of him, wanting to take his very life on multiple fronts. And yet God was his refuge, his fortress. And so he can easily say to his son, I know that God's going to be with you in this project that he's called you to because he's been nothing but faithful to me. And so therefore, where this happens, the psalmist says, Fifthly, the thing you need to know next is where your deliverance in this moment is not going to come from. Pay attention to this, verse 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Remember, the psalmist is saying this as the enemies were encircling Jerusalem. The psalmist is saying, your deliverance is not going to be in your mind. I wonder how many Jewish avengers were there in that moment, just chomping at the bit. Let me at them. Send me out of here. Give me some horses. Give me some chariots. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go take these dudes out. Like how many were putting their confidence in their flesh? And yet the psalmist says, that's not where your hope is going to be found because that's not ultimately where the problem is rooted. Remember, Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6 that our ultimate enemy is not against flesh and blood. It's not just against physical circumstances. No, there is a spiritual battle that is waging war against your soul in the midst of those circumstances. And it's far greater, that battle, than just the chariot riders that you've got, the strength of your own might. 
So therefore, a spiritual enemy cannot be met by a mere physical solution. There are some situations that no strategic plan can deliver you from. No slick, innovative creativity, no marketing campaign, no gifting, no personality, no pill, no weapon, no money can get you out of. Those things may promise deliverance, but ultimately they are a false hope of salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying by all means plan, build, prepare, innovate, invest. Just don't put your trust in it. Those things alone will not bring about the ultimate rescue and deliverance that your heart, your mind, your soul, even your body needs. So instead, sixthly, know where your deliverance does come from. You see this in verse 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. It's God who is our deliverer. It's God who is our sufficiency in times of trouble. It's him who wills and provides for the needs of his saints. Remember, James 4 says the reason we don't have oftentimes is because we don't ask. We don't ask. We get in jams and we look for clever, man-centered solutions to get out of them without ever even consulting God. And I'll give you an example of this. This is one of the early moments, benchmarks in my marriage where God gave me a lesson that would play with me for the rest of my life and marriage. We are in a spot. I am in seminary. My wife is my sugar mama. She's making about a smooth 24 grand a year as a teacher in Ponder School District. And we hit this month where we were broke, like literally could not pay our rent. We were $600 short. And I had no idea how we were going to get it. I didn't know I was going to, to pick up that money and somehow pay this thing off before we get evicted. And so we're wrestling with this. And this is where my wife and I are so vastly different. Her first response is, Shay, we need to get on our face and we need to pray. There is one being in this entire universe who owns the cattle on a thousand hills who has everything we need, who can, who can give us 600 bucks with just saying the word. Like, this is no big deal, but this is an opportunity to test our faith. And so let's run to him. Let's not look to anything else. That's my wife. My first response is eBay. <laughs> my first response is we got to sell something. Like I need to go out and I need to start, I need to donate plasma I need to get on Craigslist. I don't know what we need to do. That's what we did. That was my first response. Just pragmatism. Just need to figure out a clever way out of it. My wife wouldn't let me do that. So we literally, true story here, we get on our face in our kitchen. We get down on our knees. We're just praying, asking for God to, to provide for us and to do so in one of those ways where you just know there's no other conclusion other than God did this. That's what we're praying. True story, before we're done praying, my phone starts ringing, starts ringing. And I, I'm, I'm feeling the desire at this moment to do a quick amen, let's close shop and let's go get this phone call. My wife won't let me, just squeezes my hand, we keep praying, I'm like, but the phone just keeps ringing. Get done praying, say amen. I run, I grab the phone. It's actually my college pastor who's in an airport 
in Atlanta, Georgia. He's walking from one gate to the next and he goes, hey, I don't know why I totally forgot about this, but it just came to my mind. I needed to call you right now. I had forgotten to tell you that last week I met with our elders. They know you're going to seminary. They want to help you out. So they're actually going to pay for your seminary and they'll back pay anything that you've already paid for. And so they figured it out. A check's already in the mail for you for $600. No lie. And I make this up. This is crazy. Like to be seen in that moment, to know that our God knows our needs. And I could give you story after story of how God has done crazy, amazing things like that. What we find in this moment here is that we must be a spirit dependent people. Be careful about putting your hope in false saviors. The scripture is full of stories of God's people put in impossible situations, not so they would figure out how strong they are and how clever they are to work their way out of a jam, but rather to realize how weak we are, how dependent we are, so that we would turn to God for his strength, not ours, so that when we call upon him for his sufficiency and he delivers us, he gets all the glory. So citizen church, remember, remember the psalmist plea here. Don't put your trust in your perceived strength of your own chariots. Put it in God the Father through the finished work of God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. Prayer in your life, Prayer in your church is the clearest evidence that you believe who God is in verse 18 and 19. The absence of prayer in your life, the absence of prayer in your church is the quickest evidence of pride in your own chariots. Now, can I just show you real quick, practically how we do this, what it looks like to come to God in trust when your circumstances seem impossible. James chapter one says that when we come to God, we shouldn't come to him double-minded, but we should actually come to him full of faith. Now, here's what double-minded plays out. Remember this illustration early on again in my life in teaching our daughters how to swim. And once again, great example of how my wife and I are so vastly different. Our daughter would be on the edge of the pool. She's crying, she's wet herself. Um, she doesn't want to get in the water. She's terrified. And my wife's sitting there, you know, a couple feet off, ready to catch her. Just jump to me. No. Oh, you don't want to do that? Okay, we'll try this next week. Let's go. And she just pulls her off. I'm 30 feet back in the pool. I'm like, just jump. Just jump. I'm your dad. I'm going to catch you. I'm not going to drop you. Like, just jump. I want you to experience this. I got you. You're my girl. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Jump. And she's terrified because in that moment, she, like every one of us, is double-minded. She's double-minded. She's conflicted in her mind about what she knows to be true about dad, that he loves me. He's strong enough to not drop me. I can trust him. And what she knows in her mind to be true about concrete edges and water. And she's paralyzed. In that moment, she's double-minded. And in that moment, God is bidding to us because we're the same way. We're double-minded. We know what we know to be true about God, his goodness, his sovereignty, his love for us, his enduring promises. 
And we also know what is true about the circumstances that are pressing in on us right now. Whether it's the collateral damage from our own sins that have brought havoc on our life, whether it's the sins of others that have victimized us, or whether it's just the the natural circumstances that come from living under the curse of sin in a broken and fallen world. Whatever it may be, we know what is true about God and we know what's true about our circumstances. And if we're honest, we're double-minded because we're paralyzed. And God is bidding us the freedom here to let go of what we know to be true about our circumstances and instead just turn to him and cling to what we know to be true about him, that he is good and that he is sovereign and he will not drop you. You can jump. Now in that moment, the question still remains here. What do we do in the meantime though? What do we do in the meantime until God delivers while we're still in these circumstances, and by the way, we always say, oh, let's just get through this season. What if it's not a season? What if it's the rest of your life? Is God still enough? What do we do in the waiting until God delivers, whether it is in this life or for certain the life that is to come? Seventhly, here's our response in the meantime. Verse 20 to 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. This is a people who has an entire enemy right outside their gates. God, we trust you. Let us fix our hope in you. It is the idea of waiting patiently and joyfully in hope. We wait and we hope. And I love how this psalm is bookended, by the way. It begins and it ends with expressions of great joy and great gladness in our trust and worship of the Lord for who he is and what he can do. Dane Ortland summarizes the reason for this best when he says this. Because when you trust in the Lord as your help and your shield, in other words, when you locate your inner calm and security in God, instead of your own management of circumstances, the frenetic anxieties that clutch at your heart, they lose their vice-like grip At first, this trust feels like a dangerous freefall. Who knows where I might be swept off to if I hand over the reins of my life to another. But if we can settle in our hearts that the Lord is our heavenly father and will guide us only into that which will finally result in our joy and radiance, even if it means passing through pain, then we find his sovereign rule freeing rather than threatening. So church, do you see why this psalm is here? Whatever you're walking through today, whatever threats are breathing down your door right now, in seasons of shifting sand, of tremendous insecurity and uncertainty, when it feels like the whole world around you is crumbling, the psalmist tells us that we can one, worship and thankfulness. 
Why? Because the Lord is sovereign. That thirdly, nothing will thwart his plans. He sees you right where you are, so you don't have to put your trust in human systems. Instead, you can put your trust in God, and you can wait patiently and joyfully in hope until he delivers, and he will, if not this life, certainly the life to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning. Oh, how my soul needs to continue to remember that my deliverance is not found in my own strength. My deliverance is found in you and you alone, O Lord. God, would you help us for any soul in this room this morning who finds himself in a season of uncertainty, feel paralyzed by fear over what tomorrow or let alone even the rest of today might bring. God, would you hold them fast? Would you allow the truth of who you are, the truth of your sovereign and good rule, Lord, to wash over them? Power in the presence of your Holy Spirit, would you bring your perfect shalom to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? Lord, that we can know that you are sufficient enough for us in this, that you're not going to waste this pain. You're going to use it to form us so that we might cling tighter to you for your strength that will result in your glory and our good. And we pray this for those things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.